Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter to the Galatians. It is in this scripture we're reminded that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The truth of the gospel, that Jesus is better, should change our thinking and approach to absolutely everything. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people perfect in Him. We're going to be continuing along in this multi-part sermon that has an unknown number of parts, as I have repeated numerous times now, just continue to emphasize it. This is week number three. As we're working our way through this question of why the law, what's going on here, what was God doing with all of this? So to pick that up, uh, I'm just going to start back pretty much where we left off last week. For all of you who are visiting, uh, who don't know where we're where we've been up to this point, I apologize if I were to try to go back and rehash all of that. I wouldn't even preach today; it would just be rehash. Nothing more. 45 minutes of rehash, and then we'd pray and go home. But uh, sorry, go back and listen online. Uh, We're going to read Galatians 3.19 to chapter 4, verse 7, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. If you will, please look with me at verse 19. Paul asks, why then the law? Well, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Was the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise." I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your blessing on our time together now in your word. May your spirit open the eyes of our hearts to see, open our ears to hear and understand so that we can rightly interpret and apply these things that we're learning. I pray, Father, that that we will begin to recognize and appreciate what we have now in Christ and all that he is to us and all that that has given us, not just in some of the trite ways that we sometimes think and talk as believers, but in the real substance and the meat of what we have 
in Jesus. And so help us see that this morning, we ask. In his name we pray. Amen. While we were on a vacation in Florida earlier this year, uh, Jamie and I did something that was really, really fun and ex exciting on the vacation. We watched a documentary on Warren Buffett. Now, that shouldn't surprise some of you who know me well, uh, for others of you perhaps, but uh, you know, it was just one of those days. When you're on vacation, vacation's tiring after a while, right? You've been out and you're doing things you don't normally do and you're going here, going there, and so eventually you just kind of run out of steam and you have to just stop. And it was one of those nights we were just done, just everybody was exhausted, so we decided to veg out in front of the television and lo and behold, what's on TV with this uh, documentary about Warren Buffett. Buffett, as you all know quite well, is one of the richest men in America. His current net worth is estimated to be just south of $80 billion, 78.7 to be specific. And uh, because of his amazing success in the world of finance and investing, he has a, uh, um, a nickname. Who in here knows the nickname? Only one person knew it in the first service, and it was Greg Watts. No shock. Uh, anybody know his nickname? He is the Oracle of Omaha, very good, very good. Thank you, only one in the second service too. Now, there are many wealthy people in the world, but what sets Buffett apart from uh, a lot of the other ones is the fact that he wasn't born into a great amount of wealth. I'm not saying he was born in abject poverty. I'm just saying that he wasn't handed a billion dollars when he was getting started and turned it into 80. No, he, he worked hard and he earned it. As a child, he sold gum and uh, collected Coke bottles, sold magazines door-to-door -door. in high school. He delivered newspapers, uh, sold golf balls, stamps, uh, detailed cars. He ran a little pinball empire in the Omaha area that he sold for $1,200 when he graduated from high school because he had established such a good business. And by the time he graduated from college, he had amassed a savings of $9,800, which doesn't sound very impressive at first until you realize that in the year he graduated from college, $9,800 would be worth about $100,000 in today's money. Now, I won't bore us with all the details of the rest of his life and career, as you probably already have a gist of what happened next. He made a lot more money, a lot more over time. Uh, and I think we can summarize by saying that he was very good and successful at that. And obviously, the documentary addressed those pieces. You can't ignore them. They're why they're doing the documentary on him in the first place. But it really tried to focus on Warren Buffett as a person and not so much on Warren Buffett as a businessman extraordinaire. So there's some things that stood out to me about him as an individual. First, uh, he's just a regular guy, by and large, as regular as you can be when you have $80 billion, right? I mean, he's just, he dresses like a regular guy. He does regular guy kind of things. He, he, you know, I've seen people with a lot less money than him that act a whole lot more snooty than he does. I don't think his office has probably been updated since 1962 or something. I mean, it's, he's just a, he just comes across as like he could be your neighbor. And if he was your neighbor, you wouldn't think anything of having Warren Buffett as your neighbor. He would come over and talk about your grass, and that would be the end of it. Just a normal guy. I like that. Uh, second, this was interesting, uh, and he wasn't the only one to say this. His wife and some of his associates said this about him as well. For him, it was never really about the money. The way he described it for himself was he was just playing a game. That's what he went to work each day and had fun. He was just playing a game. And money was kind of the scorecard, so to speak, how you can measure how he was doing. But he was like, it didn't even have to really be about the money. He just enjoyed the work. I mean, that's, I like that way of thinking about it, right? This, you go, just play a game, do it, you know, see how you're doing, whether it's money or whatever else you're working on. And he, he just used that. And I was appreciated that about him as well. It wasn't all about the cash. Uh, third, I thought this was interesting. He was humble enough to recognize just how privileged he has been he had been, and maybe not in the way you were 
you might first think. There was one point in the documentary, he, he was born in 1930, by the way, so that makes him 87 years old today. So there was one point in the documentary where they were just talking to him, and he was kind of reflecting. And during this section, he really came across as an old man. Now, he doesn't really come across as an old man when you hear him talk most of the time, but this t- section he did. And you could just kind of see him thinking back over life, and he was reflecting on all that he had done and all that he had been given. And he acknowledged the fact that while he did work hard, and let's never take that away from him because he did work hard, while he worked hard, he knew that he was among a very small percentage of people on earth who were born in 1930 who could have done what he did. And what he meant by that was three things. One, he acknowledged the fact that being born as an American gave him an immediate privilege over lots of other people in the world. He was born into a land of opportunity, the likes of which most people around us even to this day just don't have. You you do understand how privileged we are to be here. For all America's faults, and we have them, believe me, for all of our faults, this is still a land of opportunity. So he was able to work hard, do what he did, and he probably would not have been as successful had he been born in any other country on earth. Also, and he was very humble with this comment, I hope it comes across the right way, he, he acknowledged the fact that being born white in 1930 was a big privilege for him. It's just because of the nature of our, of our society at the time. At the time, any other race, any other color, he would probably not have had the opportunities that he did. And so he was just acknowledging, hey, there was, there was, I did nothing about that, it just happened. And then finally, he was born male. There was this really interesting part in the, the documentary where he was talking about the fact that his sister was just as smart, if not smarter, than he was, but she never had the opportunity. Again, I think she was a little older than him, so she's born in 1920-something. Never had the opportunity to develop those things or work out any of her abilities in any other area. She basically, from the time she was born, was almost ignored by her family. And everything was focused in on Warren because he was the son. And so that was just the way it was. And so he's kind of just reflecting on this. And again, I hope a very humble way saying, you know what? I was just lucky. That was the word he used. Just lucky to be born as a white American man in 1930 to have the opportunities that I did. And so I thought that was quite interesting. Now, all of that was fascinating to me. But there was one final thing that was really fascinating to me. And that was meeting his children. I didn't meet them seeing his children in the documentary, right? He's got three kids, and so they interviewed them. And I got thinking about what he had just said, because the children came after that part. Uh, They're all, of course, in their 40s, 50s, 60s now. Um, I thought, man, if, if Warren Buffett thought he was lucky to be born, you know, white American man in 1930, he didn't do anything to get that, deserve that, earn that. He wasn't born into wealth or privilege. Think about how lucky you would be to be born as a child of Warren Buffett, right? I mean, the, he, there's a big pie, right, of the of world population of which he was born into a very narrow slice, but, uh, and I don't know what the odds of that were, but, but for his children, for these three individuals out of the totality of human uh, humanity, I can tell you roughly what the odds were of being born to Warren Buffett. There were three kids, seven billion people. That means you had a less than one half of one billionth of a percent chance of being born to Warren Buffett. Those aren't good odds if you're not good with math, okay? Those are really, really low. So you would be truly privileged, would you not, to be born into that kind of family? At least from a worldly perspective, I'm speaking there, though some people would probably prefer that. But but now consider this, consider this. If it would be an amazing privilege to be born into such wealth, such opulence, such such (laughs) position in life, 
if you would consider that a, a great privilege, how much more of a privilege is it to be born as a child of God? My wife, after the first service, made a comment to me. She said, you should probably ask people which they would prefer, <laughs> to be born as a child of Warren Buffett or a child of God, and I'm afraid some of us wouldn't like our answers on that. And she was right. It is a true privilege, and this is where Paul now begins to turn here in our text. As we ended last week here in verse 24, we saw that Paul was likening the law, the Old Testament law, the Torah, to that of a guardian, or to use the Greek word that this is translating, that of a pedagogue. You say, what exactly is a pedagogue? Well, I tried to explain it a little bit last time. A pedagogue was generally a servant or slave who would be assigned by the master of the house, the master of the family, to watch over and protect a child for a period of time. So if you are a wealthy Greek or Roman landowner, uh, whatever, master, you've, you, you've got property, you've got money, you've got people, possessions, all those things. When you have a child, the only child that you can pass all of that to in Greco-Roman culture is your firstborn son. You can't pass it to a daughter. Generally, there were exceptions, but you, you couldn't pass it. You had to pass it to your firstborn son. And so this son then becomes very important to you and to the legacy of your family because everything's going to go to him. And so a lot of attention is given to how that son is raised. So when the son, of course, is firstborn, when it's a, an infant, he's being watched over by his mother, the nursemaids, et cetera, all those people who take care of him. But as he gets older, and you say, what age? Again, I don't really know. It would depend somewhat on the family and the culture. When he reached a certain age, the, the master would appoint probably his best, most trusted servant to be this child's pedagogue. Pedagogue is like part bodyguard, protecting the child from hurting himself or from other people hurting him, part trainer, moral trainer. It's not really teaching them like to read, write, those kinds of things. There'd be an actual teacher for that, but more about how to function in life and society and just generally care for this child and attend to his needs as he grows. It's someone to watch over him at all times, and this is exactly what the pedagogue did. However, a time would come when the child would reach a point of maturity, and again, this would vary depending on the family and the home and the culture and the setting. This point would come, and when that age came, the son would now be considered a man, and the role, the time of the pedagogue came to an end. Okay, you don't have grown men in Greco-Roman culture walking around with pedagogues. In fact, in a weird twist that we'll get to more in a future sermon, the pedagogue who used to be over the son, telling them what to do, giving them commands the son has to obey, now all of a sudden the roles flip and the son becomes the master. The son becomes the owner of everything, including the servant. And so all of that had to be kind of weird. You probably had a good uh, motivation to be kind to the child if you're the pedagogue, because it's like training your own boss, right? You've know, you got to prepare them for the future. So, so this is what a pedagogue is. And this is what Paul uses here to help us understand the law. The law was our pedagogue, a temporary arrangement designed to watch over, for this moment I'm just going to say all of, all of humanity, which we'll come back to at some later point, watch over humanity until Christ came. In other words, the coming of Christ is the point of maturity in God's plan of salvation that brings the time of the law to an end. And as I told you last week, it's very important for us to try as best as we can to keep our thinking 
about salvation and all of these things kind of up at the macro level, trying to, you know, it's very easy for us, I said, to when we think about salvation, we think about God's plans, we think about it for us, right, personally. We're very personal, uh, self-centered people, especially as Americans, so we're, we're very self-focused. So we think about salvation and spiritual issues at our personal level, but, but I think Paul's speaking a little above that. I think he's thinking of the macro plan of, of God's desire to save a people for himself across all of human history. And I think this is the perspective he's speaking from. So we're going to just, we're just going to pick back up in the text where we left off last time because we still have questions to answer here. What's God doing? How's he doing? And how does he see all this? And I think we just need to keep walking down the path of Paul's argument to see where he's going to go with all of these ideas. You can see here in verse 25 that Paul completes and affirms the picture of the pedagogue that he began in verse 24. He says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian or under a pedagogue. That time has ended. And the thing that brought that time to an end, the point of maturity, is the coming of the age of faith as personified in the coming of Jesus Christ. All right? So it's done. It's finished over. That should be very clear to us now. We shouldn't have to worry about that anymore. But now... He takes the picture of the family situation that this pedagogue imagery fits into, and he begins to apply it a little broader. He says, For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And I want us to just stop, and I want us to think for a moment about the fact that we are called sons of God. This specific phrase Because I see two problems, or at least two potential problems, with this terminology. First, because of our modern American mindset and how we approach the text. I could see some people reading this phrase or this term and thinking that it comes comes across here a little sexist. You know, why didn't Paul say sons and daughters? Why didn't Paul just keep it real generic and say we're all children of God? Why is he elevating the male offspring above the female offspring? Well, uh, not to put too fine of a point on the answer, but it's because saying anything else wouldn't have made any sense especially not in that particular culture. There would have been no concept for his original readers of understanding that that being a daughter of God would have any value just because they didn't see that within their own culture and worldview. It was the son who inherited the land. It's the son who becomes the owner of everything. And while gender and position privilege are obviously tied in the Greco-Roman world, I think us thinking too deeply about that begins to like stretch it more than Paul or his readers would have originally thought. I just don't think they would go that deep with the thought. The idea is that about that of position, about that of privilege, who gets what. And so I, I feel pretty confident that that's what they were focused on. So if you're offended by his language here, please don't be. You're missing the larger point. Second, and on the topic of the larger point, the fact that we have been adopted as sons of God has become so common to us that I think it's lost all wonder in our eyes. Now, I'm not going to develop this fully here because we're going to come back to it in more detail in chapter four, but I would guess that most of us in this room this morning have gone the entire past 49 minutes without paying any attention whatsoever to the fact that we have repeatedly referred to God as being Father. Whether it's been done in our songs, it's been done in the text, it's been done in our prayers, we've used those words over and over and over again, and and we probably haven't even thought about it. And and all I'm going to say right now is that we have done this so much and for so long that that term, Father, as applied to God, has lost all meaning to us, I, I fear. And this, this, by the way, is a real problem. 
This is something we're going to have to come back and think about more detail later on. But, but it's the reality of this re- relationship that really completes the pedagogue imagery that Paul is using here. So just, just think about it logically for a moment. If the law was our pedagogue, that's what he said, then that means that we here are sons of a master. We're sons of a master. Well, who's the master? Well, God's the master. That he, in his kindness, love, and grace, now views us as being sons. And the question, of course, is how? How does he view us as being sons? Well, according to Paul here in verse 26, we are sons of God, A, in Christ Jesus, and B, through faith. So so there's something about our connection to Christ, the Son of God, that then makes us sons of God, and there's something about faith that causes us to be sons of God. And as much as I would like to like divide those ideas out and think about them like individually for a moment, take them apart, I, I'm not actually allowed to because of what Paul has done here in the text. As you see here in verse 27, he purposefully combines these two ideas into one in the picture and act of baptism. He says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Whenever you see the word for in Scripture, almost whenever, it's generally saying, hey, look back at what I just said. Look back at the things that I just talked about because I want to explain it or apply it or elaborate on it a little bit. So, okay, if you understand, want to understand what I just said, here's how you do it. Consider this truth that as many of you uh, who have put in baptized, who have been baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. Well, you know, who in Paul's mind would have been baptized? Well, that's an easy answer. It was believers. That's what he would have thought. It was those who have exercised faith. The centrality of faith has been at the focus of his message now since what? Like verse 1 of chapter 1, right? He's been hammering the centrality and the importance of faith. He's been talking about the privilege of those who believe like Abraham believed. And now we're in the age of faith. So I think it makes most sense to understand he's viewing this as believers. And, you know, it's really interesting to think about this from the perspective of the early church, Uh, not in terms of what they did so much, but in terms of when they did it. Don't answer this out loud, but let me ask you a trivia question. How long do you think it was probably average in the early church to wait between when a person made a profession of faith in Christ and when they were baptized? Again, don't answer, just come up with an answer in your head. Now, whatever answer you have, compare it to today. What's common today? A person makes a profession of faith in Christ, and what do we do? We make them wait. Three months, six months, nine months, a year, ten years, I don't know. Like, it's not like there's like a formula with it, right? But it, you make them wait. And, and we have reasons of why we think this way and do this, but I'll just say that doesn't seem to be the practice of the early church. It seems that for them, baptism would be the near immediate response of faith. Oh, you believe? You should want to be baptized then. Like now, like where's the water right now? Let's head to the pool and get the thing done today, sort of an approach. And it seems that for them, you know, it was truly viewed as one's public and genuine commitment to Christ. So if you wanted to let people know that you were a believer you weren't going on Facebook publishing weird memes and you know, buying a Jesus fish for your car. That's not the means of letting people know that you're now a believer in Jesus Christ. The way you do it is by being baptized. It was a really big deal. 
And over time, I've come to believe, and I'll address this more at the end, but I've come to almost believe that, that we should view baptism in a similar way to the way we view marriage. Stick with me just for a moment. You know, I perform weddings, so I'm thinking about this maybe from my perspective, maybe not yours, but, you know, what is it about the marriage ceremony itself that actually causes the two lovebirds in front of me to finally, you know, fully, officially be married? Is it when I, at the very end, say, I now pronounce you husband and wife? Is that it? It's like I have magical powers that causes in the cosmos beyond and in the unseen realms, finally, for you to truly and finally be married because of those words? No, I don't, okay? I didn't get that class in seminary, so it didn't work that way. So, so in that sense, nothing's happening. Yet, in a different sense, something is absolutely happening, right? Because we recognize that in that moment, that ceremony is a really big deal because it is the public and genuine commitment of these two people to live in love and relationship with one another until the day they died. And if you're in the, the room watching this thing, you are a witness, right? You're there so that if a day ever comes where those vows are in question, you can go back to the person and be like, hey, listen, I watched you make those vows. I heard you say till death do us part and for better and worse and all of those things, go fulfill your vows. You're able to do that. Well, I've started to come, and again, it's not, it's not 100% probably the best, but I've started to come to view baptism as being somewhat similar to that. That this is the way that we as believers publicly and genuinely profess our commitment to and faith in Jesus Christ. And so, to be a believer then in Paul's mind, I, I think would automatically mean that you express your faith through baptism. And so we become sons of God through faith. We also become sons of God through our union with Jesus Christ, which as you can see here in verse 27, he also very clearly ties to baptism because we are baptized not into water. Isn't it interesting that he doesn't say you were baptized into water? What are you baptized into? You're baptized into Christ. He says we have literally put on Christ, like he's a coat or a piece of clothing that can cover us. We've put him on. And this is just personally speaking why I think the act of immersion, while never required, makes the most sense in the picture. Because not only does it literally translate the word baptizo to mean submerged, but it also is the only thing I can see that really accurately reflects the spiritual reality being communicated. When, when we are justified by faith, we are made one with Christ. And this union, folks, it is so, so real, so literal, that in Romans 6, for example, Paul says, we have been united with him in his death. He says specifically, we have been crucified with him. So when you're reading the Gospels and you see Jesus hanging on the cross, there is a sense in which you can picture yourself hanging with him. He goes on there in Romans 6 and says, we have been buried with him. No one ever thinks about the burial of Jesus, but Paul does here. You are so one with him, it's like you laid in the tomb with him for three days. And then out of that, you are raised with him to new life. Elsewhere, to complete the picture, we're told that we are seated with him then in the heavenly places. And our union with Christ then becomes the backbone of almost everything every other spiritual reality that you can think of. 
You know, why, why does God view us, sinners, sinful humans as we are, why and how can he view us as being righteous? It makes no sense unless you understand that you're viewed righteous, holy, and blameless in Christ. That when he looks at us, we, he sees the righteousness of his son. We are hidden in him. And, and it's, it's this truth then that makes sense of what we see in verse 28. If, if you understand the spiritual reality of our union with Christ, then you will understand that verse 28 is addressing that reality. You see, some people like to take verse 28 and, and take it out of context in order to use what he says here to further their own political or social causes or arguments that absolutely have no place here. Oh, you know, we just throw off every arbitrary distinction of humanity. There's no races. There's no classes. There's no genders. We're all equal. We're all one. Well, <clears throat> yes and no. From the perspective of our standing before God through faith and in union with Jesus Christ, all of those statements are absolutely true. Because when God looks at us then in Christ, he doesn't elevate one race or ethnicity above the other. The Jew isn't better than the Gentile. He, he doesn't elevate or, or, or view with more favor one class above another. He doesn't elevate or view with more favor one gender above another. Because spiritually speaking, we are all one in Christ. But I would also remind you that Paul is only addressing the spiritual reality that we find ourselves in because of our union with Christ and not the practical. When I look at the practical realities around us, guess what? I'm still a Jew or a Gentile. I'm still a slave or I'm free. I'm still male or female. And he addresses those practical realities elsewhere. Ephesians 5 and 6, Colossians 3 and 4 would be great passages to turn to, where he's going to say to men, to husbands, hey, you have a responsibility, a practical responsibility in your marriage, love and lead your wives. And he's going to say to the women, the wives in those relationships, love and submit to your husbands. And he's going to say to slaves, hey, slaves, go obey your masters. Go obey your masters. Someone's alarm's going off, they don't like it so much. No. Uh, he doesn't say, hey, abandon your masters. He's like, go obey them. Hey, and if you're a master, you don't just, you know, you get to do what you want. You have to be kind to your, your slaves. He doesn't abolish or, or ignore these practical realities. He acknowledges them and applies the gospel to them. So don't take verse 28 out of context. Paul is not abolishing the practical differences that exist because of race or status or gender. He is addressing the spiritual reality of our very real union with Christ, which makes us all one in him. And if we're one with him, we belong to him. And if, as we saw back in verse 16, Christ is the true offspring of Abraham, the one who would receive all the promises, then guess what? We too then are Abraham's offspring because we're one with Christ. And if we're Abraham's offspring, then guess what? That makes us heirs according to the promise, an idea we'll have to come back to later on. So as we pause again today, I, I just want us to come back one more time, and hopefully in a way you've never maybe thought through before. Um, I just want us to come back one more time and consider for a moment our own baptism and, and, and what that should mean for us. I have a, a weird little piece of trivia. I think I've shared this before. I have a lot of weird little pieces of trivia that I share too often. I apologize. But um, this was one of the weirder ones. Uh, I have been baptized nine times. No lie. No joke. Nine times. 
So I, I, I made a profession of faith when I was nine years old. I, I didn't really understand the gospel. I just went up and told, said what the guy told me to say. I've shared that before. I won't do it again now. But when I was 13, I thought, well, I should be baptized, right? Because that's what Christians do. Christians get baptized. I'm not baptized. I should go do it. So I did. I got baptized 13. No idea what I was doing, right? God opens my eyes to salvation when I'm in college, 18 years old. Now I'm genuinely converted. And um, I come home that summer, or is that Christmas? I don't remember which. And I'm like, well, my first baptism clearly wasn't valid, right? So I should get baptized again. Still really had no idea what I was doing, but I did it. I got baptized a second time. Well, then, I, it was summer of 1999, I think. I was an intern at, here in Virginia Beach, Colonial Baptist Church, and uh, me and the other intern, we, we got to take uh, our very first seminary class. It was pastoral theology, and uh, it was a great class. You know, it was like a two- or three-week-long class, and I don't know, like second weekend, we get to a section on baptism, and our professor thought it'd be a good idea for all the guys to get a chance to practice. So who do you practice on but the interns, right? So me and the intern were each baptized seven times. That's nine, <laughs> nine total. <laughs> if you can be saved through baptism, I am good. That's all I know. I am, I am I'm, the, I'm the most saved in this room. Uh, but as I stand here today and I look back on all of that, all right, all nine of them, even though the last seven probably didn't count, but anyway, as I think back on all that, I am pretty sure that I never fully understood or appreciated what it was exactly that I was doing any of those nine times. I viewed it, I think, only as an act of obedience. And you say, no, wait a minute, isn't, isn't baptism an act of obedience? Yeah, it is that. The problem was is it's not only that, okay? <laughs> when you view it as only that, it basically just becomes this weird ancient ritual that everyone has to go through for some reason. So you can kind of like just check that box off of your spiritual checklist in the back of your Bible, right? You look, okay, got that one done. I'm good now. Glad I don't have to go back to that. And so, so as such, I, I didn't view it as having any real impact or significance for the rest of my life. I pretty much just viewed it as that box. And I checked the box nine times, so mine was like filled in like an SAT bubble, right? I mean, it was done. But, but, you know, as I said earlier, the more I've grown in my understanding of Scripture and of what it means to be a follower of Christ, the more I have come to, to view baptism as being far more significant than I had ever, I mean, ever realized in the past. Like I said, I almost view it as being like marriage, and that's just an analogy, and like all analogies, it breaks it down at a point. I don't mean for it to go further than I I intend here, but, but that's the closest I can get in my own mind to understanding the real significance of what baptism should be as a public, genuine commitment of oneself to Jesus apart from everything else. You know, when I stood on the stage that day uh, 16 years ago now, Marquette Manor Baptist Church in Downers Grove, Illinois, and I had my beautiful bride standing in front of me. I'm making these vows to her and these commitments that I will forsake all others, that I will be true to her no matter what, thick and thin, good and bad, till death do us part. This was the commitment I made to her that day, and it was a really big deal, rightly so. And if I were to abandon her today, Everyone who was there, all of our friends and family who came to witness, would have every right to come to me and be like, Stacy, what are you doing? I saw you. I was there. I heard the commitments. 
I heard the vows. I saw the exchange of rings. Go back and do what you promised. Fulfill the vows. Man up to the commitments you made. And even though you guys, no one in this room was there for that day, so none of you saw us do that, you know we got married. You know all of that stuff occurred. And so guess what? I would say that you too have the right to say that to me. If I walk away from my marriage commitments today, each and every one of you in this room could walk up to me and be like, what are you doing? Go back. Fulfill the commitments you've made. And and I just wonder, should we view baptism at least somewhat in the same way? Both from the personal side and the corporate side, that, that personally we should view baptism as being just that serious of a commitment to Christ. This is why I almost think maybe we shouldn't allow for time in between one's faith and one's baptism. Oh, you say you want to be a believer? Oh, great. Are you ready to like put a ring on it? You, are you ready to like make the commitment and never turn back till death do you part? If you're not ready for that, no, 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 then Jesus isn't for you. Because Jesus isn't a a football team that you can root for today and then switch over to tomorrow, a different one. It doesn't work that way. It's more like marriage. Not exactly, but you get the idea. It's that kind of a commitment. It's serious. It's a big deal. It's real. And that should we stray then from Christ, those who witness that baptism and everyone else who even knows about it has the right to come back to us and say, what are you doing? What, What are you doing? You made a commitment to follow Jesus until you died. This doesn't look right in your life. Where are you going here? What's your your real heart commitment? More and more, as I think about that, I'm starting to think that that's probably how it should be. And so this is the weirdest application, one of the weirder applications I've ever had in a sermon. If you are here today and you are a believer, you claim faith in Christ, but you have never been baptized, something's wrong. Something's wrong. In fact, I was trying to picture, like, what would Paul do if Paul could come into the church today and look around and see the number of people who claim faith in Christ but aren't baptized? I think he would just be like, what? I think he'd be baffled by that occurrence in the church. But we're the the primary instigators of that, I feel like. And I say that about me as a pastor and and, and others. Like, we we tend to to do this. Folks, it's not just a weird little ritual you can ignore. It is a matter of obedience, but it is also a matter of your commitment and willingness to lay aside your life and live for Christ. And for those of you in here who are believers and have been baptized, then I would simply ask you to reconsider the significance of that act in your life. You you may have been baptized and not really thought through it, okay? I got nine of them I can point to. I I didn't think through it. Nine times I didn't think through it. So you may be like me, and, and you were baptized, and you've never really thought through the value of that for the rest of your life. Can I remind you of the picture we see here? Romans 6, many other passages. That that was the moment, so to speak, that you, were, you died with Christ, were buried, and raised with him. That you were supposed to be dead to sin, and dead to every other commitment, and now alive only to Jesus. Living in him for him, and through him every single day. I only have been married one day. One time did it happen, okay? March 10th, 2001. I got that right. March 10th, it was like 11 o'clock Central Standard Time, all right? Just to give you the full details there. It only happened one time, but for 16 years, I've woken up married. Every day I'm married. 
Every day I have to live out those commitments to my wife, and it's no different for us in our faith. You make that commitment one time in baptism, but then you get up every morning and die to self and live for Jesus no matter what. And so I exhort you today, believers, fulfill the vows you've made. Whether you understood them or not at the time, fulfill the vows you've made, die to self, and live for Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that despite our foolishness and how often we just we get things wrong and mess things up, you are faithful no matter what. And I look back on my own life as a prime example of that. How much have I just foolishly, foolishly not understood and then not lived out? You, though, in your mercy and grace, you forgive and you, you continue to work in us and through us. We will genuinely, genuinely stand before you one day as nothing but trophies of grace because there is nothing in us that is worthy of anything. So thank you for your grace. And I pray now as we head out from this place that, that you will take the reality of our baptism and help us to really consider what it means to die to self and now to go out and live for Jesus. That we will no longer be people who just wake up each morning and live godlessly. Not ungodly necessarily, just godlessly. Just not even cognizant of the fact that you're there. Not living in any way as if you are real in the moment-by-moment basis. May our commitment to you be as real as a commitment to marriage. That it's each and every day we go out and live in the truth of what has been done for us in and through the person of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more sermons on the book of Galatians and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.